Uh, tonight, before I reread our scripture uh, out, of, uh, out of the Gospel of Luke, uh, the scripture that is traditional on Palm Sunday, which is what today is, uh, Passion Sunday or Palm Sunday, depending on uh, how you want to uh, phrase it, I want to go through a little bit of the context of what we see going on here. And I don't want to belabor it because we've spent a lot of time on it in years past, uh, although there's some really uh, cool history that we can have around this time. And I'm going to give you just a bite of it because I think it's important uh, as we talk about Palm Sunday. The first thing I have is bad news, which is this year in, in uh, the lectionary text, we're in the Gospel of Luke. And in the Gospel of Luke, there's no actual palms which I'm sorry is you're not really good for Palm Sunday, but uh, Luke just doesn't talk about palms. People throw coats out, uh, but we don't call it Coat Sunday this year. We're still calling it Palm Sunday. You'll just have to fill in that blank yourself. But we have this scene where Jesus is heading into Jerusalem. Jesus is very literally heading towards the cross. Right? Next year we will celebrate Easter. We celebrate the resurrection. Uh, and because we don't have our own building and our own meeting times each week, we don't really get to walk through Holy Week in the normal way that maybe we would. And I don't want to skip towards Easter without talking about kind of the heaviness that comes with this week. And this, uh, and this uh, scene of Jesus coming, into, uh, coming towards Jerusalem in this triumphal entry uh, during Passover, it's a scene that we've grown accustomed to and we know a little bit about and we've probably heard the story and we kind of take for granted. But there is a lot that is going on behind the scenes here. And I want to give you at least a little glimpse of what that is. As Jesus approaches Jerusalem at the time of Passover, there's a lot happening in Jerusalem at that time, right? Uh, this Roman-controlled city is the religious hub for the Jewish uh, faith. So uh, every year at Passover, which is their uh, featured kind of time of year, the city swells with folks coming in to worship at the temple. Uh, I can't even, I can't remember exactly, I, I've heard things two, three times the size that it normally would be, right? There's Jews from all over the place come back to Jerusalem to celebrate during Passover. So the kind of religious energy in town and the literal size and crowds grow immensely during this time. And of course, Rome controls this city. And part of controlling the city also means controlling um, the uh, religious fervor of the Jews who consider it their home and consider it their land that's been taken by Rome, right? So these crowds, as they come and, they, and, and the city is filled with worshipers and filled with believers who are convinced God intends for them to have this city and this temple back one day, and with all this excitement and religious fervor, the Roman military always shows up strong during this time. As the amount of people swell in town coming uh, for Passover, so will the Roman military. And in fact, uh, and, and we could go into a ton of detail, I won't, uh, there's, there's a lot of work, good work done by uh, uh, writers named John Dominic Croissant and um, Marcus Borg that talk through all the history of what would have been happening in town at this time. But really on the other side of town from where Jesus is, there would have been a Roman procession that would make a big show out of their military force and might. Uh, Pilate would have come into town on a war horse. There would have been banners and there would have been music and there would have been like leather and steel and stomping in the dirt. And it would have been a big show to put everyone in their place. It would be Rome's way of saying, go ahead and do your Passover thing, but don't forget who's in charge. And this procession would have been a, a big thing that happened each year during Passover as they kind of buttressed their own forces in case some of these Jews got a wild hair and began to think in all their religious fervor during the Passover 
that maybe now was the time to take back the city. So this breathtaking military display of the world's most elite fighting force would have effectively, hopefully, nipped in the bud all those with thoughts of overthrowing the government, right? So you have that that happens on one side of the town, and then this scene happens on the other. And uh, while everyone might have known about this, they don't talk about uh, this first procession in Scripture, and so we may not know that what is happening over here is really intended, I believe, to be a contrast. It's the other parade, right? Luke 19, verses 28 through 44 uh, says this. We'll stop a little bit and talk some about some of the things happening here, and then we'll get to the idea of what kind of king and what kind of kingdom we are talking about. Luke 19, 28 through 44, verse 28. After he had said this, he went on, went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near to Bethpage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter into it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. Now, I should stop there for a minute. Uh, a colt that has never been ridden, uh, it's a weird saying, and I think we tend to think of it as that means it's somehow pure or something like that. And I don't know, maybe that's part of the intended meeting. Uh, but also understand that this is uh, not the horse you want to ride in on. This is a colt that has not been broken in yet, right? This is, as opposed to the war horse that Pilate would have come in on that was highly trained and, you know, knew exactly what to do, this is an untrained colt, right? This is, this is what we call a bad idea. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it, as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, the owners asked them, as owners do when you untie their stuff, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus. Now we can stop right there again. So you have, he says, go there, find this, untie it, bring it to me. They go do it. The owners come out, say, why are you doing this? They say, the Lord needs it. And the owners apparently go, cool, and let them go, Right? Now, this indicates uh, one of a couple things. Either Jesus had, was using kind of the supernatural premonition of like, I know there's this cult out there, I want you to go and find it, or it was planned ahead of time, right? Uh, now, I'm certainly, other places in Scripture, Jesus will say to like a disciple, a future disciple, I knew you while you were still under the tree, and like there's things where Jesus knows things he shouldn't know. That could certainly have happened. My guess, based on the fact that the owner's like, cool, take it, this was probably planned out ahead of time. I don't know which one it was, but that's the way I lean. doesn't really matter one way or the other. But he gets this colt. They brought it to Jesus. And after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples, and this would be more than the 12, there's a larger crowd here, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Now part of this would be a quote from Psalm 8, 118, and this was actually something that the Jews, pre-exilic Jews, 
once a year had this thing they called an, uh, an annual royal reenthronement, where they would celebrate the king, reenthrone them each year. And this psalm, 118, was a song they sang when they did that. This is a coronation song. Uh, and again, we have a large crowd here that are singing this loudly. They're coronating Jesus here. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, now are these Pharisees disciples of Jesus until this point? Not disciples? Are they there to kind of make trouble or are they on board until this started getting a little too noisy and scary? Don't know. But some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out, right? Trying to tell these people to be quiet doesn't matter. Like nature itself is a larger truth. This is going to be true no matter what. Jesus says to them, the stones would shout out. See, this triumphal kind of scene, singing, laying down of the cloaks, even the rocks would cry out. And then verse 41, as he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, if you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. Ooh, very dark ending to this, right? portends of the worst case scenario happening. One day, this is all going to be rubble. One day, you and the children within you will be crushed to the ground because you didn't recognize God when you had God in front of you. And triumphal entry? <laughs> Palm Sunday, Passion Sunday, Holy Week is a perfect time to remember something. It's a perfect time to remember that while we as religious folks are often quick to use terms like king or lord or God in regards to Jesus, these terms are not enough in and of themselves. In fact, I think this story kind of serves as a warning that we think about what those words are when we say them. Everyone in this crowd identified Jesus correctly and missed God at the same time. We cannot ever forget that these titles, these words, often come to us with weighted and certain expectations. It certainly did for them. I think it does for us as well. When they say king, when they say savior, they meant certain things about that. And because of those expectations, they missed God before them. With Jesus, the question is not just about whether or not he is these things, but what kind of king, what kind of Lord, what kind of God is Jesus? Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up spending a lot of time making sure we gave Jesus the right names. We called him God. We called him king. We tried to get other people to do it, to sign up for those names for Jesus, to say yes to them. But we never really talked about what kind of God we meant. Jesus is trying to tell us something 
throughout the entire Holy Week, but also particularly in this triumphal procession. I would say you can learn a lot about someone by the way they show up to accomplish their task, right? The first wedding I was ever invited to be a part of by my youth minister when I was 19, he said, be in my wedding. I said, sure. He told me what time to be there. I was 30 minutes late because I wasn't good at planning, and I came in shorts and flip-flops because I didn't know. I wasn't up for the task. It said a lot about me when I walked in that room. In fact, it said everything you need to know about me as a 20-year-old. If you watch sports and you see the pregame video behind uh, the scenes, some players walk off the team bus dressed for business and some come dressed to model. And it is usually a pretty good indicator of what will happen in the field with those folks. Jesus is leaning into a particular look here for a subversive reason. This is undoubtedly a coronation. Crowds of people are saying the right things and yet Jesus weeps. Previously, we see Jesus weeping with his friends who are heartbroken over the death of their loved one. Now he weeps over a crowd of celebrants who couldn't be happier about what they think is happening. But he doesn't weep alone. Those who first read this gospel are weeping with him. Now remember, the first readers of this gospel are looking back at the very horrible events that Jesus predicted would happen in this story, right? After Christ, but before this gospel was written down and handed out, in that time in between, there was a revolt in Jerusalem. The Jews did try to take the city back, and it did not go well. Rome crushed them. I won't spend any time reading the history of what exactly happened in that conflict, but it is horrifying. It's not fit to share in public. Rome ruthlessly responded. They crushed them and the children within them, and no stone was left on the other. And the first people to read this are living just after that actually happened. The center of their faith was dismantled. Their people were brutally killed. Someone maybe they knew. Their family line may have been cut off in the conflict. It was a fresh wound for them. The readers would have fresh memories and wounds from the loss that Jesus is predicting and preemptively mourning in this story. Think 9-11 multiplied indefinitely. This was a heart-wrenching memory for those who are reading this for the first time. They tried to outroam the Romans and they lost everything. And Jesus saw the writing on the wall years before. They thought Jesus was there to win the battle for them, but he was not. He was not there to even fight that battle. If they had only recognized that day the things that made for peace, they missed God in their midst. And the question remains for us today, do we recognize a couple thousand years later what makes for peace? Do we recognize what kind of king, what kind of God Jesus is? Or do we do parades in the right name, but for the wrong kind of kingdom? What kind of king of this? What kind 
of kingdom are we talking about? Think again about Jesus' final week on this earth. His final week on this earth, he makes a royal procession into town on an unbroken colt, surrounded by people who were unarmed and unimpressive on the wrong side of town with no military. He prays in a garden and gets arrested, and then he heals the soldier that Peter strikes with a sword, and he tells Peter to disarm. He shares a meal and offers his own body and blood to men he knows will betray him shortly. He tells his closest allies that they must choose to be last in order to be first. They cannot argue over who will sit at the right or left hand. He's arrested, tried, and convicted without any real defense being made for himself. And he is hung on a cross where he comforts the thief hanging next to him and forgives those who put him there. If these are the things that bring peace, do we know it? Maybe the better question is, do we even want to know it? Because let's be honest, like those who celebrated that day as Jesus came in on the colt, this is not the kind of king we've ever really wanted. And we have tried very hard in the history of the church to make Christ into anything other than this. In fact, I would say in general, the church and the world at large has done a pretty effective job of ignoring who Christ showed himself to be. Even if all of history and all of nature keeps telling the story, even if the rocks themselves cry out. It's hard. We just can't wrap our minds around the power of a cross when the power of a sword makes so much more sense. We want Jesus in the other parade. We want a God who makes our enemies pay. We want a sanctified version of the same old kingdom. We just want to be on the winning side. We don't want a new story. We just want a new outcome. What do they say the definition of insanity is? But Palm Sunday, Holy Week, and the cross itself do not allow for this. Do not allow for the same old story with new heroes. Christ shows the world's power and the world's violence for what it always is. Destructive. Leaving our lives, our homes, our loved ones, and our religion in rubble and in despair. The world's power always does what the world's power does. And on the cross we see that the world's power eventually, if left unchecked, will kill love itself. And if we don't have a fundamentally different and better story, what do we have? And here comes Jesus into town. And this is a different king. This is a different kingdom. The kingdoms of the world drop bombs on civilians to expand their territory. The kingdom of God rents Airbnbs overseas for refugees that you don't know. The kingdoms of the world brandish increasingly larger swords to impress and scare those they want to, and the kingdom of God beats those swords into plowshares. The kingdoms of the world threaten their enemies, often in God's name, and the kingdom of God shares its cup with even the betrayer. The kingdoms of the world rule from above, force adherence, and the kingdom of God washes feet and embraces vulnerability. The kingdoms of the world demand the blood of its enemies. The kingdom of God bleeds for them.
We cannot confuse one for the other. The kingdom of God is categorically different and foolishly naive to a world that always does different versions of the same thing. There is a better story, and that is where our salvation lies, on that cult walking towards the cross. And I'm not even sure that Jesus was demonstrating some supernatural ability to predict the future as he wept over Jerusalem about what was to come. I think he just knew the end of the story because it's always the end of this story. There is no other ending possible until you're willing to change the parade. Until we were able to see the things which actually make for peace. Until we recognize God among us. So this Holy Week, our prayer is not just that we would confer the title of king to Jesus, but that we can all really see what kind of king and what kind of kingdom is at stake. May the cross continue to scandalize all that we think we know about winning and losing. May it turn the kingdoms we build on their heads and into eternity. May we follow the correct parade. Allow me to close tonight just by reading uh, the epistle for this week in the lectionary. Uh, This is one of my, uh, actually probably the most often quoted scripture you'll hear from me. It finds its way into almost everything. It was likely one of the earliest hymns of the early church, and it's in Philippians chapter 2. And I think it summarizes this pretty well, so I'm just going to read it because, unsurprisingly, the Bible says it better than me. Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind, Do nothing of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And here's where the the song probably began in the early church. Who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, By taking on the nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the king we honor. This is the kingdom we are invited to build. And if we don't do or say something about it, the rocks might just have to do it without us. Let's pray. Our God, we are grateful that we are the recipients of a new story, a better story. We are grateful that you are God who, while we are still sinners, loves us and gives your life for us. 
that you are not a God who settles accounts, but you are a God of generosity and love and grace. Our prayer is that you would give us the courage to follow you on that humble colt into the wrong side of town, to give yourself for those who do not know or love or care for you. God, to give us your heart for your kingdom. Lord, we do love you. And we ask all this in your name. Amen.